just possesses a lot of great, wonderful things. Oh, yes, and it's Jesus' birthday, right? I mean, so I don't mean to make it like hindsight. It's not, actually. It's a very cool time if you're looking at the bigger plan of things of God, and that's what I came to talk about this morning. I'm going to be talking about Christmas revelations, and these are just like little revelations I've had over the year about Christmas from... And it all comes from different things, things that I don't hear people talk about, uh, things that I don't hear people address. I hear a lot of the same things, but uh, uh, from one pastor to another after uh, 20 or so years in the church, uh, I've heard a lot of different messages around Christmas time, but they're always kind of the same. They're always kind of just the Christmas story, and there is a place and there is a time for the Christmas story, and I'm going to get to some of those things. But what I really wanted to do before we reach that time where we're really going to approach the Christmas story, I wanted to talk about different revelations that I've had along the way, just different things that I never heard preached uh, uh, maybe they're uh, a little deeper than maybe we're used to hearing around Christmas time, but uh, I, I think we're big enough. I think we're grown up enough, and I think we can handle it. Amen? All right. Well, you sound pretty good about it. So <clears throat> Thanksgiving is behind us. I do find it ironic that in the middle of us supposed to be taking the time to appreciate uh, our contentment with the things that we have and what God has blessed us with, the world would literally turn the next day and into an uh, you know, all-out brawl for, for stuff, right? I mean, these people on Thursday, oh, God, I'm so thankful for everything you have, right? I wonder if they pray the next day, please let me punch that person in the face so I can get that big screen TV, right? Uh, there's a meme uh, that, I, that I found out there that it just is like, it really did a good job of uh, showing it. It's, it's coming. It's going to pop out of that present and just show up. There it is. You mean to tell me that people trample others for sales exactly one day after being thankful for what they already have? I think that pretty much encapsulates what Thanksgiving has become, unfortunately, right? We're thankful on one day, but the second day, uh, we're like ready to kill people for the stuff that we didn't even know we needed, right? I mean, so uh, I'm kind of I'm, I'm glad. I think we've kind of turned Thanksgiving into a weird thing. I, I mean, Thanksgiving turned, you know, it used to be this whole month where everything is, is great. Now it's the month to get ready for December is really all it is. Right, we want to we want to promote uh, you know materialism, vanity, all those things, and, and so it's become that. Right, I, I believe that there's something at work in the world, something spiritual at work that is looking to counter and counterfeit the works of God. I believe our enemy is real, and he works tirelessly to move us off mission, to delay us, to distract us, if you will, uh, from doing what we're supposed to be doing, which is what it's the mission, the mission of Jesus Christ. Underlying our entire narrative, the center of our story and the center of every basically story on planet Earth is the mission of God through the works of Jesus Christ. Now, here's where it all starts. It doesn't start on Christmas Day. It doesn't start with the birth of Christ. It starts in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. <coughs> it reads like this. It says, Then the Lord God said to the servant, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the other animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And listen right here, because here is the promise that begins Christmas. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. It begins there. The Christmas story begins there. That's where it all begins. That's where the very first, the fall of men, is recorded. And God's promise to fix that has begun. It's all been birthed right in that moment with God's very words. He began to birth the very premise, the very foundation of what Jesus Christ would be built upon. From the beginning to the fall now, God's plan was set in motion. From that moment on, there was only the mission. You could see it woven into every fabric of time throughout the Bible. 
If, it, if we were to go from book to book in the Bible, you can clearly see the idea and concept of Christ riddled throughout all of it. We've done it before in here. This child who will basically cause hostility between the devil and people, he who will strike the head of the serpent, he is woven. That story is woven throughout all of the Old Testament and all the way until you approach the new. To stay on mission, however, is a military term. In the military, it's the only thing that matters. They'll tell you that. In the Marine Corps, we used to say, number one is mission accomplishment. That's number one. Number two is troop welfare. That means that mission accomplishment comes above your well-being and health. That means if you have to die to accomplish the mission, that's the way it is. It's just the way it take, the, the, the mission always takes precedent over troop welfare in the military. It's like an understood thing. <coughs> it's understood that if you're going to try to go after, try to be on mission, that there's going to be cost. Young men and women lay down their lives for the sake of the mission. But here's the conundrum we have in Christianity. What happens when the mission is troop welfare? That, you know, I can, can I tell you the hardest thing for me as a Christian and somebody who's been so ingrained in the military uh, is that separating line? I want to accomplish the mission. I've been trained that the mission is more valuable than my own life. But what happens when mission is people? What happens there? All of a sudden, people become the very important thing. They are the mission. The people, the, their well-being, where they're going, how they're doing, are they fed, are they closed? This becomes the mission. Troop welfare now is the mission. Our mission is people. The taking care of, the giving grace to, the loving others like ourselves people. We exist for this mission. The church exists as an army of people tasked with the mission of Jesus Christ. And listen, this is it. The reconciliation of God's people back to himself for the purpose of reestablishing relationship with God. We are called to return. We are all called to return. This is the mission. From Genesis, the mission found its way through each generation differently. It's a lot like a seed. God planted a seed, and it just kept growing and growing, but it didn't bloom until the birth of Christ. Now listen. Uh, as great as the birth is, it's not, it's not the end of what God has promised. It's just the beginning of the promise. Uh, and, and I don't get into that because I'll rob away from the birth. But Easter truly is better, really is better, more victorious for us. It's the end of it, the culmination of everything God has called us to. And listen, we know the story of the birth, man. How many of you have heard it Christmas after Christmas? Some of us have families where we sit down and we read the story over and over every Christmas, and it's like ingrained into us, right? And there are two versions of this story in the Bible. There's a PG version, and there's a rated R version, right? You didn't even know that, right? The PG version is found in Luke. That's the one you read at Christmas because nobody wants to read Matthew's version. Let's just be honest. Matthew's version starts out with genealogy. You're like, already, I don't even like it. Right? I mean, you would just be like that right off the bat. Matthew's, Luke's, Luke's is basically very pretty. Sets up the scenes, right? It's magical. It's, it's heavenly. It's in its description that kind of a love makes a way, you know, kind of writing and uh, the way he approaches it. Matthew's version is filled with jealousy, mysticism, and murder. Right? Both are correct and true. After, listen, after years of studying the Bible, I, I've learned that basically Matthew, well, I mean, we know this if we study it. As a, as a teacher studying as a student, we know that, that Matthew was writing to the Jews. Uh, Luke was writing to the Gentiles. But let me explain it in terms that we can understand. Matthew was writing to the church. Luke was writing to the lost. The lost need hope. 
They already, you know, the funny thing about lost people, they already know how wicked they are. It's the church folk that need help being remembered. They need to be reminded sometimes, and Matthew's version is really a great reminder. To the lost, there's no need to condemn or heap guilt or shame. They have no prior history of, in knowing the God who created them. Sure, the world testifies to who he is, which is why they feel and no conviction when faced with their sins. They'll read Luke with awe and reverence and will, and will know that something wonderful has happened. They will see Jesus as a beacon of hope, as a mediator, as a friend, and ultimately the Savior. To the church... Matthew's version will lay the foundation of a sinister history of our wickedness. We see the fruits of our behavior. We see our history of killing God's men and women who were on mission, tasked by God to bring us heavenly wisdom and revelation to keep us on the right path. Matthew's version causes us to take a close look at our own humanity and see the darkness of our very own depravity. We see our lust for vanity. We see our materialism. We see our egotistical, self-loving, self-glorifying heart. And both points of views are needed. We only like to read one, which should obviously tell you how we are as people. We will always choose the prettier story. You know, one of the things like me and my wife will, will kind of argue about is on what to watch as a movie. My wife is, uh, and I love it because this is actually a valid point, by the way. She goes, I don't want to watch a movie unless there's a happy ending. She's like, I don't need a dose of reality. I live in it. I want to hear, I want to go see things where everything is great. I was like, but life isn't like that. I already live with that. I don't, I don't need that. When I go to escape, I want it to be an escape where I think everything is great and everything is wonderful, right? And so we read Luke every Christmas because we don't want to hear about all the babies that were murdered. We just want to hear about the one baby that brought us salvation. Pay no attention that it cost the whole generation. Pay no attention of all the blood that was shed. Pay no attention to all these things because we want a happy ending. Because we already live in this life, we understand how cynical and how horrible this place can be sometimes. We get it. We get it. We choose Luke's gospel over Matthew's. We choose it. But both are needed. Both stories must be told because we must constantly be reminded of the vision and mission of God as told in Genesis. God's word still stands today. Nothing has changed. We're still on mission to the lost. Luke's version reveals that God has provided Jesus and the works of Christ as a defining moment of heart change which will lead us to world change, by the way. And to the church, Matthew's version is meant to humble us and to make us lower our self-righteousness so we can go out and perform the works of Christ. Right? It's like, as a, as a lost person, you should read Luke's gospel. But if you're saved, you need to read Matthew's once in a while just to put yourself in your place. That's really kind of how it is. God gave you both versions so you could see, listen, both are the truth, by the way. Both are mingled together. They're telling the whole story if you read both. But this is the mission. This is showing you that the mission is difficult. There's life involved in this. Yes, depending on how you look at it, there's some greatness to this thing, but there's also some very hard things to the mission. But we're supposed to go out, and we're supposed to form the works of Christ now, being reconciled by Christ. So what does it look like? What does it look like? What should Christmas produce? What is the birth or the seed of the promise? Should, what, what should it produce in us? What does that look like? I mean, if we're, all of this is to point us towards this greater mission. If the only reason we celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the birth of Christ, it's to celebrate what God's also done, what he's birthed in us. So what does that look like? It looks like Luke chapter 10. And you all know this story. This is verse 30 through 37. This is the good Samaritan. You know this story. So Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, 
and left him for half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds in olive oil, with olive oil and wine and bandaged them, and then he put, on his own, uh, put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was the neighbor to the man who attacked by bandits, who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked, uh, uh, the man replied, the one who showed mercy. Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. This is the mission. This is how we're supposed to be. This is what we're supposed to be. This is what the birth of Christ should produce in us. This is what the seed promises us. This is why we need to be reminded sometimes because sometimes we can be so self-righteous we won't do the acts of God. Let me tell you how and let me show you why because in the parable, which most of you know this, and, uh, but let's really look at it again. First, it was a Jewish man that was traveling. The Jews live in the full knowledge of who God is. Remember Matthew's gospel? It's speaking to the church, to the Jews. He's speaking to the church here in this moment, right? This is not... This is not like God or Jesus speaking to lost people. I hope you don't get it. No, he's saying, listen, church, listen, those who claim to know God, those who claim to know me, listen, it was a Jewish man. The Jews live in full knowledge. They're accountable for the way they live. They've been given laws. There are certain things that they're supposed to know by knowing God, having lived from one generation to the next. This Jewish man was beaten, robbed, stripped naked, and left for dead. And you know what they don't say in this parable? The real feeling of how that feels. I don't know if you've ever been taken advantage of or you've ever been swindled, but I tell you what, uh, uh, it, you can feel you deal with shame. You deal with the feeling of being victimized. I'm going to tell you right now, like, that, that's something I actually struggle with. Because when I am victimized, you want to talk about somebody who can get angry? I can blow my top when I feel like I'm being the victim. Or somebody's placing me in a, in a position of being the victim. I, man, I can get mad. What about being ridiculed or feeling helpless? Here's this man. He's laying there. He's been overran. They've taken everything from him. They left him for dead. Listen to the first person that comes along, the priest. Now, priests are chosen from the tribe of Levi. Listen, this means they are the descendants of Aaron and Moses. Moses. I mean, if anybody's kids can get it right, surely it's the tribe of Levi. Handpicked by God to be the priest, set forth by law, God's decree, right? The first person that meets him is the priest. He spent, this is a guy who's supposed to spend his days in intercession and performing rituals that reveal Christ, remember? He's the butcher. He understands that blood is the atonement sacrifice, right? He understands the lamb idea. He understands the lion idea. But in that moment, he's struggling to be Christ. Matter of fact, he just turns and walks on. This is a fellow church member. By the way, this is the pastor who says, I ain't got time for you. Yeah, I could go on there. A temple assistant is the next one. Who is that? That's somebody on staff at the church. <laughs> so let's, let me get this right. The pastor's not going to come uh, help you out. Uh, the secretaries or the anybody else serving under, obviously, this same pastor. I wonder if it's the temple assistant just following behind his own priest, right? He's probably the helper of this guy, like uh, associate pastor, right? He comes to church every day. He's around the ministry and around the ministers. 
So maybe it's no surprise that he didn't help this fellow Jewish citizen because, let's just face it, the saying we have in church is as the pastor goes, so goes the pews. They'd lead the way. If the pastor ain't out there going to help anybody, guess what? Ain't nobody else going to help anybody. If the pastor's not out there sacrificing and living in a way that's right before God, do you think their people are? No. It's not going to happen. In leadership, we have a saying also that goes, what we behold, we become. And if you're up here looking at me all the time, by gosh, I better be living for God. I better live in such a way that shows such a sacrifice and such a holy pursuit for God so you have something to aim for. Because I'm going to tell you right now, I know the difficulty of not having something, Jesus not being tangibly visible. (laughs) My wife, we talked about the other day, she said, I struggle so hard, it's not fair that God can decide not to talk back during prayer. She goes, I feel like I'm talking to myself half the time or that I'm crazy. And it's a valid, isn't that valid? Right? We serve a God who's somewhat intangible. Right? I mean, there are times where we can say, I have physically witnessed the presence of God. But I can honestly say I have not physically seen the, vis- the physical aspect of God. Right? Lastly, the person who comes, and uh, I love what Jesus does here. It's not anybody else that calls him this. Jesus calls him the despised Samaritan. Uh, man, is he speaking to the church here. He's, he's trying to tell them through their own language that there's some obvious racism and self-righteous behavior. You're obviously racist against these people. You think they have no value and nothing to offer. And you treat them poorly. I mean, they're despised. Like, they don't even, Jews don't even talk to Samaritans. They're unholy, unclean, nothing to do with, right? They won't have anything to do with it. So, like, guess what? Samaritans aren't like best friends with Jews. Not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen. Um, he, he, he brings, Jesus brings all this into perspective. And, and it's, I think it's funny, the, the guy who goes to church is in the ditch here, but the guy who's lost is riding along. And none of the church will help the other church folk, but the lost guy will help the church folk. The Samaritan tends the wounds to the man who'd never do the same to him. The Samaritan takes care of him with his own time and his own money, two of which are more important just about than anything here on earth. And then Jesus, like, throws the bomb, like he just drops the microphone. And who's the neighbor? Right? Who's the neighbor? What is a neighbor? Maybe the reason we struggle to win our neighbors is because our definition of what a neighbor is stands in contrast to what Jesus depicts a neighbor to be. I got a video real quick. I want to show you what a good neighbor looks like.
No, man, no, they call you up now, man. Joey and everything, man. Maybe our definition of what a neighbor is stands in contrast to what Jesus says. A neighbor treats others as they would like to be treated. A neighbor loves unconditionally, unselfishly, listen, wastefully, and sometimes dangerously. After all, giving someone money for a room and for someone to nurse them back to health without knowing where that could end could seem both dangerous and foolish. Here's two silver coins. No matter what, he doesn't, he doesn't say, hey, when it gets here, cut that thing off. He says, when I come back, I'll pay the rest of the tab. I, I don't even know what that could be. It could be extensive. Come on, some of you have done medical. You know, like we think about it in today's terms, that had to be valuable then as it's valuable now. What kind of neighbor are you? How do you love? How do you express gratitude for what God has given you? I mean, Thanksgiving, we're right here on the back end of it, and we're approaching Christmas, the birth of Christ. If there's ever anything we should be thankful for, it's going to be this moment, right? Where God has birthed something. And listen, it's more than just birthed in salvation. He birthed a movement, a movement of being neighbors, a movement of loving each other, a movement of change. How do you express gratitude for what God has given you? Only you can answer that. And here's something else. That answer is different for everyone. Right? So you don't, get, you don't get to judge one another. Well, they don't do this and they don't do that. You don't get to judge that. You don't get to judge that. This one parable represents well the vastness of God's love. And at times our lack of alignment to it. These teachings are given us to show us what a citizen of heaven looks like and the type of God we serve. They're reminders of grace, mercy, and love uh, towards God's people. I mean, and listen, all of this is the drumbeat of the mission. Constantly return to me. This is what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven on earth as it is in heaven. You are right now, if you are saved, you are a citizen of heaven. How are you conducting yourselves here? This is what it looks like to be one. This is the drumbeat. God's pounding heart for people. He loves them. He wants to reconnect with them. He wants, to be, he wants them to be where he is. Remember, uh, this is the God who created a place for them to be. Jesus was created for the implementation of this vision. Right? Christmas is not the end, nor is it the accomplishment of the mission. It is ground zero. That's what it is. It is ground zero for the initial first plan of accomplishing the salvation and reconciliation of people. It's ground zero. If you're in a leadership position for any sort of time, one of the things you're going to find out uh, if you want people to understand what you're doing or where you're going is you're going to have to convey vision all the time. As a pastor, they put out books on this. They'll, call it, they'll say all the time, in every sermon you do, make sure that you somehow implement the vision of what God has told you to do or where your church is going. So make no mistake, it's not by coincidence that I constantly find myself saying return to God, Right? We know that the vision here at, at, at Mosaic is to return to God. We, we will advance the gospel by returning to God, by returning back to the Lord. 
right? That's not by coincidence that I find myself saying that in every sermon or, or somehow in every service to say that word return, right? That's because as God conveys vision over time, we've learned in leadership by watching God to do these same things. Look at a company. In any website you go to on a company, there's two statements, a vision statement and a mission statement, right? Where is your company going in the future? Where do you see it going? Where do you see it headed? What is the mission or the focal point of your company? It's like on every, every website that you're going to find out there. Every company has one. And we get this from God, who with great patience planted in the hearts of men the idea and concept of a coming Christ who would bear all the sins of all mankind. It was God who from one generation to the next patiently waited to implement his plan, but not too soon. Because we needed to see the depths and darkness and the vast chasm of our separation from him. It took 2,000 years. We're slow learners. Think about this. From Genesis to the birth of Christ, God in patience wanted to show you depravity. Because why not bring it about right after Moses? Why not bring it about after Noah? We obviously can see the depravity that happened in Noah so much so that he wanted to wipe out the face of the earth. We understand that's bad. So why not bring about Christ right after that? Wouldn't that have been a good time? It's as if God's saying, no, I don't think you have enough history of really seeing how God-awful you are. So God says, oh, I'm going to take this whole time. I'm going to use the entire Old Testament to show you the wickedness and depravity of your own selves. So that when you see the New Testament, it will be a breath of fresh air. You will celebrate it for years to come. Why? Because you will have had such a long time living in such the yuck and muck that you will embrace it. We will call it a holiday. We will sing about it, create songs, write songs, and sing about the wonder of God. Why? Because we've lived for too long, too long, uh, shedding the blood of animals, being butchers, realizing the harshness of our sin and depravity. We're slow learners. Christmas isn't the end of that plan, nor the culmination of that plan. It was only the beginning. The birth of Christ is the physical and tangible beginning it's only the seed. It's as if God, for the first time, opened up the heavens and just dropped the seed down. That's all it is. It's not the bloom. And listen, the bloom is great, but it's still not it. The bloom is really the ministry of Christ. We got to see the flower bloom those three years. He bloomed, right? But when, when did really the seed really spread, right? When it, just like any acorn, the one acorn falls, and what happens? It grows a tree, and then from that tree, other acorns come into play, Right? It's not till the seed dies, right? I don't want to get into that. I, I think I was going to preach that next week. I just lost that one, I think. It was the beginning. We celebrate the finality of God's 2,000-year patience in teaching us, preparing us, and returning us, us back to himself. We celebrate the birth of Christ as the beginning of that moment. We celebrate the birth of Christ as a reminder of our past and a celebration of our future. Christmas isn't the end of that work. It's the small beginning. This child that comes into our world, really, I mean, like, think about how crazy this is. Born from the Holy Spirit and from the womb of a woman. It's a bizarre story. It's a bizarre story. I mean, uh, we laughed about it uh, to the seventh graders at Faith Academy when we began to talk about uh, the very beginning as we went to the first part of Matthew and we kind of saw the ugly side of Christmas through, through Matthew. And we talked about how Joseph kind of rejected Mary in the beginning. Uh, who can blame him, by the way? Listen, we're taught at a pretty, fairly young age about uh, one plus one equals two, not one plus the Holy Spirit equals two. You know what I'm saying? It's just that isn't how that normally accumulates. So 
very awkward conversation to have with seventh graders. But this is the way it is. It's a very different type of story, but he was born of this woman. Uh, Philippians, Paul said it like this, and when he, he kind of grabs it up in the Christmas story to the Philippians, in just verses 1 through 7, he says, Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose. Sound like Christmas? He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think it Think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, took the humble position of a slave, and was born as a human being. You see, it, it could have looked at it like it's beneath me. I don't have to be a human being to come back and reconcile the world. I'm God. I could just say it. I could say it, and it's done. I'm choosing this so that you'll understand it. So that people say, well, can't God just tell us and just make us safe? Yes, but God wants to win you. This is the, the uh, lover in him. I want to win your heart, and I'm constantly trying to win your heart. And, and, and this, may, this plan will show you how much you mean to me. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of that seed of promise, the 2,000-year-old mission and vision from God that has riddled itself through time, that was born into the natural, the beginning works of salvation, the foundation that will lay the ground for Easter. It's truthfully, man, Easter... Easter is when it becomes real. I mean, it really is the most greatest time in the church, right? The birth of Christ we celebrate now, but this, this walk that we know is about to happen, it's going to culminate. The flower is going to die. It says, not till the seed die can it be, can it grow. The seed has to die, right? And as soon as the seed dies, we see in Easter, right? The church blossoms. Trees start sprouting up from all the acorns, right? That's just how it grows. That's how it grows. But we have to have these dual perspectives. We've got to keep these dual perspectives. There's got to be the perspective where we're kind of like innocent of heart, like Luke, where in our lostness we can appreciate this loving story, this magical story that's laid out in Luke. And then right when self-righteousness and pride and some of these other things begin to whelp up, that's when we got Matthew. Take us home, Matthew. Remind us once more how, how grateful we need to be. Remind us the cost that this took upon humanity for Jesus to come. Remind us of the danger that he had to bear to come here. Remind us of how wicked we are that we thought we could just kill off the Son of God. Like that was a good idea. And, and for what did Herod want to kill him off for? Because I'm worried about my own throne. I'm worried about materialism and vanity and all those things like that. I'm not worried about my heart. I'm worried about my stuff. The irony of Thanksgiving and Black Friday and all those things coming on the back, you know the back end of that month and entering into the month where we celebrate the birth of freedom from those things, right? That's the irony of Thanksgiving at, at this point in time. I mean, like, it seems everything we do, even this year, you know, we're going to get in fight over what? Stupid, I saw like a dumb thing about the Starbucks cups. We get in such dumb fights for dumb things, right? We need to lead them to Luke's gospel is what we need, right? I mean, what are we doing? We, we, it's funny how we complain about the lost, and in, in, in actual reality, the, the lost are always loved in the Bible. It's the church that's always complaining about, that God is always complaining about the church. <laughs> Get your act together. Shape up. Don't you know how hard this was? Look at all the blood that was shed. 
can't you see your depravity? I let it out. I actually wrote a book so you could actually see how bad you were for all of since the time began. Get, come on, get with it, get with it. Love people. Maybe the hard thing we have is it's hard for us to love others because we, we have a hard time struggling to love ourselves. And I think that's where our struggle is. You know why? Because we look at the Old Testament and we know we're just as bad. We look at the Old Testament and we see the wickedness even in our own hearts. But here's where we fail. You fail to see the grace and forgiveness that God provides. This Christmas, walk in grace. This Christmas, walk in the favor of the Lord. Walk, walk in forgiveness. Right? I mean, it's, it's, been bo- it's born for you. He's born to die. This is why he comes into this world. He has no mistake about it. He knows. He knows that his purpose has come to be the sacrifice for all men, and he embraces it. And he knows it from the beginning. He knows his time is limited on planet Earth. And he never runs from it. And to this day, even, the reason we always say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Because it really was, per- it really was personal. When, when he says, it is finished, I'm telling you, God knew the names then of all who would receive him. He knows you. And he did it full well knowing what your life was going to look like, what everything was going to be. But he knew that you plus him would be awesome. And that's what Christmas is. That's what Christmas is. So this is just a little bit of revelation this week. And I'm going to start piling up some things. And maybe some things we never even thought about before. Or or never even think of when we hear the Christmas story. It's just things that always like, you ever have something that just doesn't sit well? You read the story and it's like something's not right. I always wondered why I never heard Matthew's gospel at Christmas time. You know, and I begin to read and study, and it's like, I can see why. I don't think I like, before I, you know, tell my kids to go, go to bed, I don't want to read them about all the children, like, dying of the first, firstborn. It's like reading Moses before you go to bed. Like, nobody wants to read. That's just horrible. All the plagues, people dying, firstborn children dying. It just doesn't set up this great, uh, I noticed that that didn't make the Disney cartoons, right? That's the stuff that doesn't make the Disney cartoons. So, the uh, same way. I think we have to talk about these things because if we don't, what we do is we decide what is good and what is not. We start deciding what we can handle and what we can't handle. And, and here's my problem with that. It's, it's, I've thought about it at times. Should I preach this? Should I not preach this? What I've decided when it comes to that stuff or what I've prayed about really when it comes to that is that I'm going to preach whatever God tells me to preach. And if you can handle it, great. And if you can't, uh, okay, sorry. Uh, because here's, here's the way I look at that. Some of you might need it. Some of you may have never heard some of the things that have come from the gospel or come from the Bible or come from God in these areas, great revelations, right? Or maybe never looked at it like that, and you need to. You need to be woke up to some things and see things. Amen? Stand to your feet. Let me pray for you this morning. Worship was so good this morning. Make sure you tell those girls that the worship was good this morning. They just do a good job. They do a really good job. Uh, we haven't got to the place where we're kind of coming early enough for practice yet. And so these girls, they come in and they just nail it. And uh, I think I'm going to tell you right now, you know what does that? A right heart and a right spirit. That's what does that. So y'all make sure you tell them this morning. Uh, this morning, let me just pray over you. Uh, I know, I, man, I don't know about you, but it's been a long week. And I feel like, and, and I know, or at least in my household, uh, it's been a tiring spirit. Just a spirit of just like we're here on the back end of this year, and the, the temptation is to be relaxed, or the temptation is to sit back. 
But I think there are times where we must drive forward. And if there was ever a time to have a celebratory spirit and to laugh a little, it's going to be this month. Amen? Man, that's a sorry amen. But I'll take it. It's like, amen. That that was that tired spirit right there. (laughs) Called it. I called it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray for the spirit of laughter in this place, God. That this 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 uh, next month, God, we are going to dedicate uh, to you, Lord, Lord, a joyful heart. Uh, Lord, let us join in with the angels that sing and pronounce the coming of the birth of Christ, God. And Father, may we cheer it in, God, and may we love one another, God. May we, uh, uh, Lord, approach the 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 Christmas story and the Gospels, God, and 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 Lord, with an open mind and with open eyes and open ears, God, to the things that you'd want us to see and hear through it, God. And Lord, as, as, as we get ready for this week, Father, I pray that uh, you would use us in ways to bless others, God, that this would become a month of blessing, Lord, and not selfish blessing, but selfless blessing. Father, may we uh, seek out families, God, by which to serve and help. And Lord, send us those who need it. Doesn't matter if they ever come here, God. What matters is that your people are served, God. Teach us to be intercessors. Teach us to be intercessors. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I just tell you something real quick while you're standing up, just while I'm thinking about it? You know, as I begin to study this and begin to look at Moses, uh, I've gone through a book that's called All the Prayers of the Bible and going through this thing and really reading about Moses and, and, and who Moses was. You know, one of the things that just about 90% of all the prayers Moses prayed were intercessory prayers. And Moses was the type of leader that this, and I pray that you become the type of neighbor that models this. Moses was the type of leader that when God said, let me just kill them and give you a new people, he says, if you kill them, then you take me with them. And God relented, it said. You know, to me, I think God had found a man who was, he was very pleased with. If you kill them, then you kill me. Because I am one of them. He was never this higher. I think that's why he struggled with leadership. Because he never saw himself as a leader. I'm one of them. Right? Listen, the priest and the, and the, the temple uh, helper there, they'd already created this separate society. Listen, it already happens in our churches. You know it. I don't have to say it. All right? It already happens that there's the pastors and there's the people. I, if I really told you what I'd really think, I'd probably sin right now. All right? That's about what I think of that. I, th- there's, there's one. There's the sheep of which I am one also. We love to call pastor shepherd, but there's only one shepherd in the church, and he's called the great shepherd. Nowhere does it call, I mean, they, do I, do, can, can pastors possess the skills of shepherds? Sure, but what are we? What does the Bible call us? When I read it, I don't ever see myself as the shepherd in there. I read myself as the sheep. You know what? It's easier for me to help people if I'm always the same as them. If I never picture myself as a separate society or a, a higher group, Right? The priest could not help the lowly man, right? They couldn't even help their own Jews. I'm not going to help out the pew. The pew can help out itself. They, don't they know that they exist to give me tithe? 
We, it's bad in the church today with this, but listen, it doesn't have to stay that way. It doesn't have to continue on. One of the things about Mosaic was this, is that we were going to try to launch and be exactly what the Bible said a church was supposed to be. But that, what that means to me is just being a sheep. Am I going to preach sometimes? Am I going to do things that are past, pastoral according to what we know? Absolutely. But you know what? Maybe it's just being a neighbor. Maybe it's just modeling that before you and not such a, well, this is what pastors do. No, this, this is what neighbors do. They visit the sick. They visit the elderly. They visit uh, with people. They, they, they go next door and hand them food on Thanksgiving. They go and bring gifts to somebody's kids. I had a guy who, uh, just an opportunity, never comes to church ever. I'm trying. But he's a guy that uh, works up the, uh, I don't want to say where, uh, but he, he's a guy that works up here in Marble Falls. Uh, I know him through some different ways and stuff and uh, have kind of just spent some time off and on, had some lunches with him. I'm always talking to him. Younger than me, he's in his 20s, has a girlfriend. Um, he, he, his, his car was in a wreck. He actually was parked and it was hit. And, uh, and I saw it on Facebook. He's like, and I can't believe it. This is like the fourth time that my car has been parked and hit. I was like, bro, you got to park in a different place first. <laughs> Second, I actually went up there and saw him at his job, came out and said, let me look at it. I, well, I tell you what, I, I, th- if, I thought if it was just a headlight we were fixing, maybe I'd buy that for you. But I tell you what I will do. I have a car that sits in my house. And if you need to borrow it this week. Now, he said no. But that doesn't matter. You know what he did? He immediately got back on Facebook at the end. He immediately got on Facebook, texted me and says, man. You're amazing. He goes, I know we kind of know each other, but it's not like we know each other. We don't talk to each other all the time. We talk to maybe each other once um, every two months or something. And he's somebody I met here just two or three years ago. Uh, and I would call him a friend because we kind of share some hobby-type activity stuff uh, uh, together. But, but he was so taken back that I would offer. But you know what? I'm not going to lie. I was scared. That's my car. I don't want it to be wrecked. I mean, this guy's got his parked car wrecked four times. I don't want my car to be the fifth, right? <clears throat> and I started thinking about, is the insurance even going to allow me? And, but I knew that that's what being a neighbor was. This Christmas, the mission of Jesus Christ, you will do honor to Christmas by being a good neighbor. By being a good neighbor. And if it just happens to look pastoral because that's what you're used to calling it, then that's just what it is. But I call it being a good neighbor. I call it being Christ. And this is what we're here for. Amen? Get out of here. I love you.